0: You are listening to Confessions of a High School Bible Teacher.
1: Hey everybody, this is Christopher Seals and across the table
0: from me in room Y204 is... Wayne David Randolph. I'm working on a new catchy tune, Randolph. Did you say did you call me randolph on accident? Can we just start over? <laughs> no, it's better this way. Please. Hey, Wayne. That's so weird. Yeah. <laughs> I, I was I, I was I was working on a catchy Randolph tune. Randolph. I don't I don't know. I'm narcissistic.
1: Have you ever been on a pirate ship?
0: I have. <laughs> Tell me about it. I told uh which one? Oh, wow. The, the, Were you ever on the Jolly Roger? No. No. Oh. No. I was on a f- Faux, a fake pirate ship. F a u x. Yes, yeah. in um, Cancun. Okay. It was a tourist trap. That's cool. They fed us piratey type food.
1: Um, did it have any armaments on it?
0: Yeah, it had um, cannons. That's good. Cannonballs. So, so uh, do you think I could call you? A, nests.
1: Could I call you a cannon expert?
0: I mean, I have propositional knowledge about uh, about cannons. That's good. Yeah.
1: Um, today we have a very special <laughs> episode for you. Um, we um, had the opportunity to interview a Canon expert.
0: And, and when you say we, really it was you because I was crazy busy and... You pick up the stuff. That is true. There
1: <laughs> <normal. laughs> no, no. There was a, there was a mission trip, and there was a field trip, and there were some vans involved. Um, and so Wayne was not able to be there. But we realized in hindsight that it's probably a little bit better this way um, because I can get into um, geek mode.
0: Yeah, you um, geeked out in this interview. Yeah, man. it was fun. Yeah, it um, seemed really cool.
1: And so what we're going to do <laughs> is we're just going to let this interview play, um, and. Uh, hear this conversation between me and Dr. John Mead about canon lists of all things. Um, And then afterwards, Wayne and I are going to kind of come together and debrief some of
0: it. Yeah, we'll unpack some stuff, some terms, some big academic... I mean, like literally things that I took notes on in college decades ago Mm. that... I don't even know if you can brush the dust off. And yeah. so I'm going to need you to help us out and navigate those for us.
1: Sounds good. Cool. Um, and just so, just so that you're aware, um, I did, this was like a FaceTime interview, and I was using an iPhone 5C, which is a little oh, dated. Oh, How dare you? I know. So if any listeners out there um, who have a benefactor's heart um, that want to <laughs> give me a like a six or something newer, yeah. I'd be happy to take your old phone.
0: Well, be bold. I mean, ask for like at least a seven. Yeah. Okay. Is there an iPhone 7? There is a 7. (laughs) All right.
1: So you might hear a couple of little blips or little things that I had to edit here and there, but it shouldn't be too distracting.
0: But the podcast remains infallible.
1: It is. All right. Well played. Here you go. Thanks. So ladies and gentlemen, um, here I have with me Dr. John Mead. Um, He's a professor at Phoenix Seminary um, and... Of all things, he is, he's like our first professional, um, (laughs) that we've had on the podcast as far as, um, biblical history and origins. I mean, when I'm just looking through your, your bio, um, should I call you John or Dr. Mead? John is great. All right, all right, John. Um, We'll
2: we'll switch back to West Coast manners. All right, sounds good. Perfect.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Um, So you teach Hebrew language, Old Testament literature. You specialize in courses on the Septuagint, the Apocrypha, canon, biblical theology. That. That's a lot and I also just from googling you you're in um associated with some research into the hexapla um That's right all of this is i mean for for the the lay person right for the the run of the mill normal Christian person who goes to church on sundays um these are things that a lot of us don't think about on the regular basis so like how yeah. how did you find yourself being the biblical scholar john mead with with all of these crazy <laughs> specialized areas of interest and focused
2: well i think to start answering that question um i think it came down to as, as a bible college student I, I was a biblical languages major hmm. so i wanted to first of all uh know what the scriptures meant firsthand, kind of without the aid of, um, you know, some of the more standard English translations. Yeah. And, uh, what you don't know, um, necessarily by starting down that path is just how deep the rabbit hole goes. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So, So you start learning Hebrew and Greek and Aramaic, and then you realize that, um, that, uh, these are just sort of the tips of icebergs to, to larger cultural structures. Wow. And, uh, and also um, tips of icebergs to understanding kind of the textual histories, you know, yeah. that um, these books were written in. Yeah. So, so, yeah, and then, you know, just as I was going through seminary, there was a Bible college attached to the seminary that I went to, uh, which was the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary mm. in Louisville, Kentucky. Uh, just I don't know how it happens like this, but people just kind of start gravitating towards you, you asking questions hmm. that I don't know the answers to immediately. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it kind of causes you to, you know read more and dig more into these topics. And so So before you know it, you're working on something as esoteric. As
1: the hexapla. <laughs> well, so, tell, for our listeners here, I mean, we, we do have a lot of listeners who have done some biblical studies and who are Bible teachers, but um, there's going to be a, a large number who the hexapla sounds more like something yeah. out of geometry class than. Right.
2: Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, as it should. Right. So hexapla is made up of a couple of Greek words, hex meaning six, mm-hmm. and pla meaning fold. And so. The Church Father, Origen, put together a six-columned Bible with six parallel columns. Hmm. In the first two columns, he put the Hebrew text in Hebrew letters. In the second column, it's the Hebrew text in Greek letters, or what Hmm. we would call transliteration. Hmm. And then in the last four columns uh, are different Greek versions of the Hebrew Scriptures or Old Testament Scriptures in Greek. So they are from Aquila, Symmachus, the Septuagint, or the Seventy, and then uh, the last column contained in the version of Theodosian. Wow. So Aquila, Symmachus, and Theodosian are not household names, unless you're in my household. Right. My, my, <laughs> my wife teases me about these things, because as I was working on my dissertation, they just kind of kept coming up in conversation. But these are Jewish revisers hmm. of the, the Greek scriptures. It would be like the New King James Version, to say the King James Version probably in the 1st and 2nd centuries AD. Wow. And uh, their their versions surface in debates between Christians and Jews. Hmm. So in Isaiah 7.14, is it the virgin that conceives and gives birth to a son, like the old Septuagint version read, and certainly like the Gospel of Matthew read it that Mm way? Or... These these Jewish revisers were changing that word Parthenos, virgin, uh, to the Greek word Neonis, young woman, hmm. and so um, right. removing kind of that element right from the from the translation.
1: Right, and then for the early Christians, then that would be kind of a that's kind of a big detail, right?
2: Yeah, it's sort of <laughs> a sort of a shot, right? Yeah, right. to the virgin birth and so on.
1: Yeah, absolutely. That's right
2: that's right
1: okay um so you've <laughs> studied the hexapla and and some of your your at least your more recently published work um i actually got a copy of the book and it's pretty fascinating the biblical canon lists from early christian christianity um texts and analysis and honestly when yeah there it is on the on the face <laughs> <laughs> face time um, wh- when i when i look at that title i think okay this is uh this is an area of importance um but but how many Christians actually know how important this issue is and how important it is to actually look into this thing. Um, and and even, even just barely getting, scratching the surface. And, um, I haven't read it all the way through, but I've read, um, a, a lot of the stuff toward the beginning. Um, I think there's a lot of things about the canonization process about the lists of the books of the Bible and how we got them, um, into our, I don't know, our ubiquitous, like our biblical mm-hmm. context where they're they're on everyone's shelf. They're in, in the drawers at hotels. Um, and we right. sort of take for granted that, that these books, um, there was a process for that to end up in this bound book that we have today. Uh, right. So what, what sort of, um, pushed you toward this area of study, looking at the, the early canon lists, um, and, and the canonization process.
2: How did you get to there? Yeah. So, so, you start studying the texts,
1: mm-hmm.
2: right, according to their original languages, now according to their histories, the manuscript histories, mm-hmm. uh, and you run up against a lot of different theories, like like a Septuagint canon, hmm. so that is wider, that contains more books hmm. than, say, our Protestant canon or Hebrew canon, you right. see. Right. So, the old theory goes that Jews in Alexandria uh, c- had a wider canon than Jews living in Palestine, hmm. okay? And so, as, I, as I'm kind of like, you know, I'm still a student, I'm still sort of sifting through these things, um, I was given a lot of arguments. to show. The lists were never part of those sort of arguments hmm. for why the canons were, were different or similar.
0: Okay, so the sound it got a little funky there, but he basically he was saying as he started asking these questions and he's getting responses, he's getting these kind of arguments for it. Um, in those arguments he's getting back, he never never once was were the actual lists right. in those arguments. His
1: area of expertise, this area of study that he's he's done a lot of work into, the lists were never really part of
0: that conversation. H- hence the reason for him writing a book. Yeah. Okay, cool. Awesome. Yeah. Cool. That Here was go. good clearly. Thanks. Back to John.
2: Uh, I had to teach a course on the biblical canon several years ago, Hmm. and that's when I was first really wrestling with these lists.
3: Hmm.
2: And uh, I emailed the the co-author of the book, Ed Gallagher, and uh, I said, Ed, because Ed's also a, a real scholar in these areas, I said, Ed, has anyone done anything with these canon lists? As far as I can tell, they're not really presented very well in any of the histories on the canon. Hmm. They, they are kind of reduced and summarized. They're not really presented in their fullness. And so, and he shot an email back and said, Yeah, John, not much has been done on that for probably over 100 years. Oh, wow. And thought, wow. <laughs> okay, so and I said, how do you feel about collaboration? And uh, he said, sure, let's do this. And so... What you're looking at now is kind of the fruit of something that started, I guess, back in 2014, 2015. Wow. So, yeah, yeah. So I expected to find in these lists, you know, the the later Roman Catholic list, right, that mm. included all of these, you know, what we called apocryphal books, mm. right, of first mm-hmm. and second Maccabees or right. Judith Tobit. Yeah, I expected to see all those um, Bell and and the Dragon
1: or Sirach or all those things. Yeah,
2: yeah, Wisdom of Solomon, right, these kind of books and you just sort of thought, well, maybe I'm just going to find those books, their titles, in all of these canon lists. Just to answer your question I guess simply, you study the languages, you study the texts, and then you kind of want to know, like, what did early Christians and Jews think think was the limited list of books, right? right? What was the actual kind of exclusive canon exclusive list of books
1: yeah and I, i had a in in my life and teachings of jesus class in my undergrad work um one of my my professor essentially um He was teaching us the different theories The Mark Q theory, the proto-Matthew The proto-Luke theory, all of these different Theories and then we're taking these copious Notes and like uh, smoke is Coming off our papers because we're trying to keep up with him And then last he says and now there's The dove theory um, and We're still taking him really seriously and he says well There's this giant dove that Comes down from heaven and there are these Stone tablets that he's bearing on His back and on Those tablets are the four gospels." and then by the time he gets to the the stone tablets We're all rolling our eyes at him because he's making a joke. But I, I, I think he's sort of in that class, he was sort of exposing the fact that there is this, this mystery to the Canon. There's this sort of like, we magically got these books um, that some sort of like Harry Potter waving of the wand thing occurred. And these yep. 27 new Testament books showed up and we have, yep. we have Canon all of a sudden.
2: Yep. Well, in preparation for, uh, this chat, I, I had to last night search on Twitter in the, in the (laughs) search bar, uh, biblical canon lists. I just put that in there kind of randomly. And sure enough, within the last week or so, Hmm. someone who I, who I don't know was, uh, arguing with others that, uh, a bunch of bishops got together at the council of Nicaea Hmm. And they once and for all uh determined where and in which books God spoke.
1: hmm, interesting.
2: So they took a vote <laughs> and and Chris they have the, she knows of the list of books. The first thing that you'll notice in our book is that there is no canon list from the Council of Nicaea because right. history just doesn't bear that out like right. you there's there's really no evidence for. Discussions of the canon at Nicaea. so anyways, what, just... what
1: about uh, what about the Council of Laodicea? So we, one of our textbooks is Cold Case Christianity. And one of the things he's, he's working out, he points to Codex Sinaiticus, which is really fun to hear high school sophomores say Codex Sinaiticus and Council of Laodicea in the same sentence. <laughs> um, right. Even just getting them to say that, like, I I feel sort of proud, but it's a win. Yeah, it's a win. Yeah, sure. Yep. But even <laughs> um, we're. we're as I was reading your book and at these things that I've been teaching my kids at the Council of Laodicea, we had more, I, I think up till now, maybe wrongly, I've been telling them, oh, and the canon was definitely decided by the Council of Laodicea. But as I'm doing some more reading, it, it kind of seems like maybe not determined is not necessarily the right verbiage to use, right? <laughs>
2: yeah, yeah, the Council of Laodicea. Uh, you'll notice we actually went with a a bit more of a literal translation. So we we translated it Synod of Laodicea, not Council of Laodicea.
3: Hmm.
2: We did that for a reason. Um, Using the word council kind of gives it that really official, final kind of sense, right? Right. Synod is more like a small regional gathering. Hmm. (laughs) Um, I mean... Most estimates of the Synod of Laodicea, there's maybe 20 or so bishops present. Council of Nicaea, right, there's like over 100 bishops or something like this Hmm. present, okay? So um, the same thing with, uh, on the Latin side of things, it's not the Council of Hippo, it's probably Synod of Hippo, hmm. okay, a smaller gathering in North Africa, not this big council at Carthage, but a smaller gathering. Hmm. So, so they still, you know, it seems to me, though there's a bit of a history, there's a bit of a mystery in the history of the Synod of Laodicea, um, hmm. but it seems to me that, they're, that they came up with a, a list of books there. Right. And, and um, though it wasn't final, uh, that list, main consensus of the fourth century Eastern churches as to what was in and what was out right. uh, of the canon. Mm-hmm.
0: So, okay, just uh, again a, a little audio thing there. Which, by the way, good job, Chris. It's hard to do interviews over the phone, huh? Yeah. Or is this one Skype? Uh, FaceTime. No one uses Skype anymore. I didn't. I didn't say Skype. You heard me wrong. Oh. Um, okay, but back to this. Um, I also heard him wrong. That's a dumb segue. <laughs> Go on. <laughs> what? What did he say there? What was there? Was a little jump, but I, I kind of I, I wasn't tracking.
1: So he was sort of unpacking the the mystery of the synod of Laodicea, um, and how it seems like there there might have been a list there, but it, it does. The reason that it's important is that even though it's not this universal council that's across the entirety of the church, um, at least at that regional gathering, it does seem to present the fact that there is consensus about those 27 books of the new testament at the synod of laodicea so even if it doesn't represent the whole church it at least represents that regional gathering of leaders being on the same page about the the text that we and have is it right just now.
0: laodicea or is it like all of asia minor in that it, area yeah or? the meeting was at laodicea okay okay so yeah cool thanks all right back to john
1: Even with talking with some of our students, we we read in in this 10th grade textbook that leading up to that point, there were some of the early church fathers that are talking about, um, they're they're maybe not necessarily making lists, but they're including or mentioning these books that they consider to be scripture. But there's a handful of them that seem to... Consistently resurface as the the question mark books like Second uh, Peter, Third John, the Book of Jude, um, and t- typically um, some of those um, general epistles toward right. the end of the New Testament that seem to be at least in the eyes of some sort of a question mark um, to the early Christian community.
2: Yeah, so so the the clear evidence for that is is the Church Father Eusebius mm-hmm. um, around three twenty five. AD uh, lists out those books which are hom- hom- homo legumina, right? Universally recognized, mm-hmm. um, and in that he, you know, he puts the four Gospels, he puts the letters of Paul, um, he even puts Revelation, if some accept that testimony, hmm. uh, and then two out of those seven general epistles. So, First Peter and First John right. uh, are universally recognized, but <laughs> the other the other five. Uh, Jude, James, 2nd, 3rd John, 2nd Peter, yeah. In what's called anti-legomena. He puts those in disputed, not, not apocryphal, hmm. okay. So so in they're most, not
1: apocryphal, they're disputed texts.
2: Right. There's Got some, it. Some, and notice he puts, he kind of lists Revelation again. Hmm. He says some have it as disputed, you see. Others have it fully recognize, some churches dispute Revelation, uh, but Revelation never sort of pops down in the third tier of apocryphal or dangerous books. Hmm. That kind of, that'd be a category in the early church kind of reserved for things like the Gospel of Thomas, hmm. uh, you know, the Gospel of Philip, you know, these sort of what we call Gnostic Gospels right. today. Um, so it's two of those seven into universally accepted. Uh, the five are... The other five are disputed, but it seems that from 325 on, um, really by 350, Cyril of Jerusalem, if you look at his canon list, he's the first to list all seven of those general epistles Uh, at at one time in one list. That's about 25 years later than Hmm. Eusebius.
1: Interesting. Yeah. Yeah, so, yeah. So with all of this, if, if I'm, I mean, Wayne and I, we, we do this podcast clearly from the perspective of those who are in Christian education, particularly those gearing toward high school, right? And if right. I, if I'm channeling my inner high schooler, um, there's a part of me that thinks, Okay, if there's all this disputing about these books, then, I mean, should I just not read the second half of the New Testament, perhaps? And maybe just (laughs) stick with the Gospels and completely just be a red-letter Christian that only reads Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? Or uh, what do we do with the the fact that there's disputed material in there?
2: Right. Well— disputed I, I think means that um, again many churches accepted them hmm. and uh, I, I've just written a paper on this out of the 18 or so uh, New Testament canon lists that are in our book 18 of them um, the vast majority of them Greek and Latin uh, include all of the the, the Catholic epistles hmm. okay I think that's I think that's important to say up front right Um but there are a few lists which acknowledge disputes or don't include them at all, okay? Mm. But but the fact that by the late 4th century, we've got all seven of them without dispute and most of the canon lists, I think, speaks vol- volumes that the Church Fathers uh, recognize these books as in the canon. Mm. So sometimes you see disputed and you think, well, what if that is like a book that, like, just didn't wind up in the canon, right? Something yeah. something like this, yeah. Well, the fact is we, we, again, in retrospect, we see this in hindsight. There were books that were on the bubble that were not finally recognized.
1: Hmm. Could you give us some so, examples of those?
2: Yeah, yeah. So you mentioned Codex Sinaiticus, Yeah. and uh, at the very end of Codex Sinaiticus, uh, there are two books that are included that were not finally included in the canon. They were called, called the Shepherd of Hermas, hmm. and the Epistle of Barnabas. Hmm. Okay, were yeah, were added to the end of Codex Sinaiticus. They are very popular Christian works,
3: hmm.
2: and uh, many Christians read them. Some thought that uh, the Shepherd of Hermas was divinely inspired, hmm. actually. But the interesting thing is, the general consensus of the churches through time finally comes to recognize that. The Shepherd of Hermas is not ever recognized as canon. Hmm. So, um, so again, we have to you know keep in mind that the Spirit of God, providence of God, is is superintending this entire process. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't come at it from a strictly um, sort of naturalistic, you know, let's watch and see how this developed. But, but I, it is interesting to see and to and to note to our young people that there were debates, Hmm. and there were discussions uh, to hide those from our young people, um, because when they meet uh, Professor of Religion 101 someday, (laughs) (laughs) um, they are... They are going to ask why we, they were never taught, you right. know, that, that there were serious discussions
1: about yeah. these things. Yeah, and yeah. E- even myself, I remember uh, I gr- I went through Christian school for junior high and high school, and there was a lot of teaching on the reliability of Scripture, and, and even um, the words of inerrancy were thrown around, right, like these—, these um, I guess, theological buzzwords within our Christian communities. Um, and I remember being told stories about, you know, uh, there would be these scribes that could hammer a nail through the text and know exactly what letter it was going through on each of the pages. And um, and I remember even at Azusa Pacific University, which, which has a pretty large evangelical clientele, um, my professors there in the biblical studies program were still able to say, hey, bud, that, that's not how yeah. scribes did it necessarily. Right. And I, I remember having that feeling of, like, yeah. w- was I deceived? Like, how much else right. do I need to rethink yeah. that right. I was taught when I was growing yeah. up?
2: Right? Yeah. And, and part of it, too, is we, we, if you want to understand early Christian views of Scripture, um, it, you can't sort of bring in your canonical, non-canonical, bifurcation kind of system, what right. we have to, we have to adopt trinary description So religious literature. What, what was that word uh, more time? Trinary. trinary, so not binary, but trinary. Hmm. So you, you've got canon, they have a clear concept of canon, and then you've got apocryphal, right? But then they have an intermediate category hmm. in the middle. They, they have a category of what I would call useful scripture hmm. or books to be read. These are books that illustrate piety, Mm -hmm. that is, true religion, but they are not afforded the same amount of authority as the canonical books. Hmm. So when I come to Codex Sinaiticus, which has more books than just the New Testament, Hmm. I I actually have a framework for interpreting that. Hmm. They have the 27 canonical books, and they have some other useful or edificatory literature at the end, but those two books are not considered as part of the canon
1: so we we need to sort of abandon this um oversimplified it's in or its out thinking that there's this other category yep. of useful books now I mean this may be more personal than it is um for the sake of everybody who's listening um, sure. but i I remember in in college, hearing a lot about Enoch, the Book of Enoch, and maybe even how some there are some sections within the the general or the Catholic epistles that seem to be referring to the Book of First Enoch. Um, would that in, in if we have a trinary mentality, would that no. be in that third category of yeah. useful yeah. books to read? Yeah,
2: yeah, possibly. Hmm. Um, well, I think what it does at least is. Um, it will show that you can't you can't define um, an ancient writer's canon by the books that they cite and quote. Hmm. So, Ju- so Jude does apparently cite the book of First Enoch, right? And uh, some church fathers like Tertullian already assumed that Jude was in and used that citation. <laughs> uh, to show that maybe Enoch ought to be in, you know, wow. this kind of thing. So, or, or, yeah. So, I think, it, I think that's how it goes, or something like that. So, um, but I think what what we learn really is that someone can cite a book or even allude to a book mm. um, in very positive ways, mm. but not actually consider the book canonical. Right. So. And the way I would show this is, and we actually do this in the book quite a bit, is we will show how various Church Fathers will cite those books on the bubble. Hmm. And some of them will cite something like the Wisdom of Solomon, for example, or, or Sirach, or sometimes, you know, it's called Ecclesiasticus. Mm-hmm. They'll cite it as Scripture. Hmm. So they use the Greek word, gegrapte, it has been written, or they call it Hegraphe, the Scripture, hmm. um... And they cite it in an in what seems like an authoritative way, even. Mm. And yet, when that same father puts together a canon list, Sirach and the Wisdom of Solomon are not on the canon. But, right yeah and even,
1: yeah absolutely makes sense yeah. I'm, I'm thinking about yeah. how many sermons i have heard that have had like a c.s lewis quote and and there's this weight or authority that people will invoke c.s lewis with or right. or Char- right. charles spurgeon or some yeah. of these great names that that people think wow these are insightful thoughts and by citing these mm-hmm. men of god of the past who were great thinkers uh, it sort of That's brings right. some weight to your argument however right. if you ask those same preachers well is C s lewis canon they would say no like obviously not right that's right that's right
2: so so no doubt jews and and early christians i think esteemed these books thought of some of these books highly um but but would not ever kind of call them canon Hmm. if that if that makes sense yeah
1: and so that that sort of begs the question then right because then um i'm i'm channeling my high schooler again and say okay that's great we have these useful books and then we have that which is canon and that which is neither of those things so then right. what is how do they even decide? And, and one of the things that I try to help students understand is it's not, it's not like a bunch of random guys got in a room and, and took a vote and no. were like, well, I like this right. one, but you like that one is it, <laughs> exactly. them recognizing the authority of, of these, these, right. these books and these letters, but, but how do they go about, what were the, the markers that they were looking at? Cause I, I feel like I was taught a lot of those markers or identifiers, um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but, but I mm-hmm. it was not. Intellectually, at a point where I could challenge those things that are, I was being taught to think, okay, well, right. how do we know that those were the markers they were looking for?
2: Yeah, yeah. So, unfortunately, they never sit down and actually say, here are the criteria. Right. <laughs> yeah.
1: That'd be really nice, huh?
2: <laughs> yeah, that would be nice. Um, what, one that, that seems to, you know, of course, be really important to them is, uh, is apostolicity, hmm. right? Um, I, it does seem. Uh, like the Book of Revelation, where in the earliest phase, like in the 2nd century, uh, this book was oftentimes quoted and thought of as the work of the Apostle John, hmm. the disciple whom Jesus loved, you hmm. know, that, that John. Right. But, but uh, later on, um, <laughs> a, uh, a certain Dionysius of Alexandria mm-hmm. in the 3rd century, who was, a, who was a bishop there, Uh, cast doubt on that and said, no, this must be John the Elder. It's a different John, Hmm. not John the Apostle. And that sort of seemed to cause a lot of doubts then about the authenticity of the book of Revelation. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. So so we can illustrate that apostolicity is definitely part of the equation. Got it. Uh, Kind of going hand in hand with that, antiquity seems to be uh, a major criterion. The older a book uh, was thought to be uh, the more likely it was uh, to be canonical. Right. Uh, this works for both the Old Testament and the New. Okay, uh, we can see something like in the Muratorian fragment, uh, sometimes called the Muratorian Canon, uh, but the Muratorian fragment does make this point uh, about how the Shepherd of Hermas really can't be in because. It's written during our time, okay, hmm. not the time of the apostles, okay, that right. kind of thing. Uh, so, so that would um, sort of be an example of antiquity,
1: right? And that would sort of help to negate perhaps some of the the Gnostic gospels, right? Because those were yeah. also even if they were right. written under the name of Thomas or Mary or Judas, they yes. um, it's largely recognized that they were written century right. or more later, right?
2: That's right. That's right. That kind of leads to orthodoxy. Hmm. Uh, which is another one, uh, suppose, again, they don't give us a clear list of these things. You're, you're sort of putting these criteria together based upon kind of all the discussions. Right. Uh, so so orthodoxy, the, the measure of uh, the message of a book, uh, does seem to matter. It has to line up with the so-called rule of faith, um, the regula fidei, uh it can't be it can't be sort of promoting, you know, a, a Gnostic kind of message, you know, right. that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The uh, the last one, uh which is I think where our canon list book helps maybe the most, is is usage hmm. and and um according to ecclesiastical criterion. So that is what are the churches appealing to as canon? Okay? Hmm. And this is, I think, goes to your, your immediate question, right? It's not a, um, a conspiracy where a few bishops get together in a room and make a vote uh, or take a vote, and now once for all the canon of Scripture is decided. Mm. Like, that's just not what happened. Right. What, hap- what happened, it seems, is that you had all these various churches spread across the Roman Empire from as far away as you know Syria to, say, Gaul,
1: um, so I just want to make sure that's Gaul is modern day Spain or France, France, France. Oh, France. yeah, oh, modern okay. day
2: France. Yeah, that's right. Okay. Yeah. So, so what you've got is, uh, interestingly, like again, these lists, which have a, a real measure of, um, agreement, there's some, there are minor disagreements, but a real measure of agreement, but it's not happening as the result of some grand plot.
3: Hmm. You know what
2: I mean? It, it's, it's happening gradually. But but also certainly that all these churches, all these bishops, at various times, it definitely in various places, hmm. are arriving at the conclusion of these books and not others.
1: Right. Is and that, I, yeah, and I yeah. think that that's super important because I think that sometimes the assumption is that we need to have. Absolute agreement about things, even even when people get into um, discussions on, well, why why are some of these details different in the different gospel accounts of these stories that Jesus. where one mentions that it was gyrus and the other one just says it was a synagogue ruler. And, and we have these little tiny details that are different. Um, but I think that one, something that's really important in communicating to, uh, like our, our students and our student ministries, and even, even to the church at large, um, who is asking these sorts of questions that, that know the, the discussion and the, the fact that there isn't necessarily consensus all the time is actually a huge asset um, that points to this wasn't just some crazy conspiracy this wasn't just a bunch of religious elites getting together saying here's what the masses have to believe but rather it's the work of the Holy Spirit in the entire community of faith and right. get to see that conversation right? e- exactly according to a Pew research study three quarters of Christians say they believe that the Bible is the word of God About a third of Americans say they read scripture at least once a week. But I wonder what the percentage of Christians would be that say they know how we got the scripture, how we got these books of the Bible. Here's what our students said.
2: Probably the disciples? Mm. I don't know. But they probably say they got it from God
1: you know, and then we got it from the interpreters and
2: translators from them and so on and so on. Yeah.
1: Well, the disciples had students that they passed on the gospel to and then those students copied down that original scripture and it kept going like in a chain into the
3: Koenig Synaticus, which we have now, which we get most of our Bible translations from today. Um, I vaguely remember that there was like different groups of like really religious people throughout time that have sorted through and saw what was like, scribes. Yeah, like scribes kind of, that um, like sorted through
1: the, all the different literature that was written and saw what was most beneficial um, for the story of God.
3: The lists, or like the names, or, I, I don't know, honestly. Um Through.
1: The code of... <laughs> wait, wait 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 okay so we got it from like um, it being passed down by generations of people but it was passed down very carefully and very well um, and very um, accurately and we know that from like the Codex Sinaiticus and uh, <laughs> other things like that <laughs> yes oh I don't know maybe the prophets are the authors that wrote them Which books were in and which books were out, though? (laughs) The ones that went according to the gospel message of Christ.
2: And so I should say, too, about uh, in terms of just one piece about a canon list that's important is, you know, Athanasius famously writes down the 27-book traditional New Testament canon in 367 Hmm. A.D. Mm -hmm. But... We just need to keep clear that that's not him inventing the canon in right. 367. I mean, he's, he's bringing together strands that have been long in place, mm-hmm. like way before him. So it's not debated that there's four and no more Gospels right. <laughs> by 180 A.D. Right. with Irenaeus of Lyons. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not really debated that there are 13 or 14 epistles of Paul by two hundred hmm. acts, hmm. never seems to really be debated. Hmm. Okay, uh, in the earliest period, so Revelation, like we've talked about already, it was uh, it was in and accepted, and then kind of fell out for a while, only to kind of come back in. Does that mm-hmm. make sense? So, um, and then the Catholic epistles. Well, we've already talked about those, but right. Um, but I think it's really important. This this helps to talk about a core canon of hmm. Gospels, Paul, Acts you know, Revelation, really, um, and then, you know, then kind of talking about books on the edges, where those edges eventually become firm. Hmm. So, so I just think, you know, with our young people, when we're talking about discipleship, we're talking about worldview issues, um, I think it's just really important to kind of give the facts. And, uh, you know, um, and there's a way to put that, I think. I think a lot of people are afraid of these Gnostic Gospels, but again, when you look at all the evidence, the Gnostic Gospels, um, they're not really going to be in the canon. And no one ever, to my knowledge, seriously suggests that those books should be in the canon. Hmm. Now, yeah. Christians might be reading them, but again, that's we're, we're, we've now learned that reading books... Is far different than considering them to be canon,
1: right? Exactly. Yeah, I've read the Lord yeah. of the Rings, but I'm not going to call them the right. Bible. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's
2: right. exactly. <laughs> so, so,
1: what would you say to to that that random student in the class that's like, "Well, then, like, why does the canon have to be closed? Can't you know the Spirit of God still be speaking, and can't we still have <laughs> an open canon? Maybe, maybe we should put uh, you know the the next big Christian book in there, um, as long mm-hmm. as we know that it's inspired by the same Spirit of God, man." Mm-hmm. They hold up their peace mm-hmm. signs.
2: Yeah, what? That's right. Peace. Yeah. yeah. So, I. <laughs> oh man, there's a lot to say to that. First of all, some <laughs> people, first of all, some Christians like Karl Barth have actually suggested that, that <laughs> a number of things can become canon. A <laughs> number of things can become the word of God uh, to us, and then they can also become canon or rule <laughs> uh, for our lives. Okay, so, so first of all, I want to say some people have suggested that, <laughs> but, but what, what have they missed? if we've laid this out carefully, Hmm. the canon is never one person's decision. Right. It is, if it's anything, it is the community's recognition of and acknowledgement of these books and not others. Hmm. So what most people don't know, let me just, maybe this is an aside, but I think this will be helpful. Hmm. Uh, Sometimes it's helpful to use one of our own heroes, or at least my hero, uh, is Martin Luther. Hmm. You know, I, I, Martin Luther, I think, uh, gave one of the clearest expressions of the gospel in all of church history. Hmm. Okay? Yeah. All right. Uh, I'm not going to say he saved the gospel. I think it was right. there in the Middle Ages. But, but, but his New Testament canon had only 23 books in it. Hmm. If you look at his table of contents, he, uh, he, he numbers 23 books, and then he leaves out Hebrews, Jude, James, of course— and Revelation, hmm. he lists them, but they're not numbered <laughs> hmm. in his German translation. Well, what does this tell us? Martin Luther didn't think that those four books should be in the canon, but later Lutherans went on to include those books in their canon, right? right. Like yeah. So it, I, I think it just kind of shows that even a towering figure mm-hmm. like Martin Luther uh, can't dictate the terms and the boundaries of the canon. Hmm. can't do it yeah so 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 to the high school student i say you know uh good luck give it give it a try give it a go see what happens (laughs) you know um but but canon has never been about the individual's preference it's always been about the the wider communities uh superintendents of the spirit of god Hmm. um that's led to those books. So, so it's yeah. the
1: wider community and and the the work of the Holy Spirit. Um, yeah,
2: it's always both, isn't
1: it? Yeah, that's that's beautiful. Um, so, <laughs> I, I guess maybe one last question I would have um, in this sure, conversation sure. is, um, if we have. I think that most Christians that I've come into contact with haven't asked any of these questions that I'm asking you, right? They don't know what the hexapla is. A lot of Christians don't know the difference between canon with one N and canon with two N's, Um, right? They'd be asking, wait, why are we talking about shooting off cannonballs this whole episode, right? That's right. That's Um, right. So so for those Christians um, who maybe this isn't even on their radar, I, I guess I would wonder, should this be on their radar? this is a question that I have oftentimes with high schoolers where there maybe there's an issue or a debate or a complex thought or or something that yep. that isn't even on their radar um for those of us who are in leadership um to what extent should we introduce these things to their radar to what extent should we just let people continue not knowing things, and to what extent should we? maybe introduce some ideas that might complicate their understanding of, of yeah. God and faith and the gospel yeah. and the Bible and all that. Yeah.
2: yeah. So the, there's a Christian uh, slogan goes back as le- at least as far as Augustine. Hmm. Uh, it's clearly seen in Anselm uh, faith seeking understanding, right? Mm-hmm. Fides quaerens intellectum hmm.
3: uh,
2: faith seeking understanding. Um, I, I, I think it, It it bears remembering right now um, that none of this really, or or little, not not much of this, um, shakes our faith in in Jesus Christ. Right? Mm. Like I want to say that kind of up front. Right. Um, And I think as long as we're talking about the canon in the context of discipleship and and Christian worldview formation. Um, I think it ought to be the Church that introduces um, its, its new converts to these issues. Hmm. So it usually comes as a surprise to learn that uh, Cyril of Jerusalem, we've talked about him a little bit, mm-hmm. he gives his canon list in the context of catechism. Hmm. That is the the instructing of new converts right. in the faith. And it's, it's done with this kind of motivation. Look, these are the books that the churches read. This hmm. is where uh, sound doctrine can be found, here and not elsewhere. Hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. I, I mean, how helpful is that for a new convert to learn that right yeah. off the bat? Yeah. Right. Um, I think that's helpful. Uh, Augustine, in his On Christian Teaching, that's where his canon list is found. What, what becomes, for us... Uh, the, the matter of scholarly debate was for early Christians uh, a matter of sort of uh, chief importance. Okay, like foundational issues to Christianity.
1: Right the the fact yeah. that the fact that canon lists um, don't show up in our introduction to to Christianity and what is scriptural because I I think that a lot is just assumed about what what is scripture and what is the Bible? And and I think that we do a great injustice to um, these yep. young people growing up in the faith by just assuming that they ought to know I think so. that this is scripture, right?
2: Cause, I think so. Cause, no, cause... I think so. Yeah. I mean, to— to put it this way, I mean, for, for someone to learn about canon issues from Dan Brown <laughs> and the Da Vinci Code, yeah. right? Which we laugh, but that's definitely been the case. Right. That's where
1: uh, that's where yeah. they first hear of the issue is in the Da, da Vinci really, Code. That's it's crazy. stuff like
2: this. So, what, you know, when um when I when I do the Twitter search on on biblical canon and uh, Council of Nicaea, and its list pops up, like our young people have no chance hmm. against against culture and its views on this kind of stuff time right. magazine newsweek new york times they all have opinions on this stuff
1: right so exactly. so we ought
2: to be we ought, so to answer your question we ought to be proactive mm-hmm. i think in in training our our young converts
1: absolutely and i think especially um any of the areas that that I think for those of our listeners who maybe are in youth ministry or in Christian education, the issues that that maybe scare you um, as educators are probably some of the most important issues for us to touch on, because if we ignore them, imagine that fear when they learn it from someone else, right? Exactly. Um, Exactly. I'm even thinking about the one one of the units that we teach in our tenth grade Bible class is on on textual artifacts about like for example the the stoning of the the Jesus telling uh, that story where the the woman gets caught in the act of adultery and he says who he was without sin cast the first stone like letting him know hey this wasn't in some of the earliest manuscripts that we have because if. If they assume that there's no debate about it and they learn about that being questionable mm-hmm. text from an atheist, from an agnostic, from, mm-hmm. from the Religion mm-hmm. 101 professor at the state school, then then, then that's going to do much more to erode their trust in Scripture yeah. than us saying, here's a proper way to view it.
2: Exactly. Yeah, I, 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 I see mostly benefits hmm. in having this as a component of of instruction and Christian worldview. Yeah, that's that's all I can see. Um, and again, it's in, it's it's interesting. Um, many of the early canon lists show up in that setting. Yeah. that very setting, because there was confusion back then. And there's confusion today. Mm-hmm. I, I don't think much has changed, actually, yeah. on that. Yeah.
1: That's good. So um, <laughs> t- tell our listeners out here if they want to find your work. Uh, clearly, if you have access to Amazon or iBooks or um, yes. or if you go to a, a, maybe a Christian book, I don't know what kind of bookstore we could find um, your book. It's, <laughs> it's by Oxford University Press. Um, so that's pretty. Um, that's pretty big name, right? Yeah, um, that's right. So um you, you can find his uh book on the biblical canon list from early Christianity, um, in any of those great book vendors. Um but where else can they find out about you and maybe some of your articles that you're presenting or any of those sorts of things?
2: Sure. So um I've been blogging more hmm. on uh on a site called Evangelical Textual Criticism. Great. Dot dot blogspot com. Uh so that's me and and really a, a number of other uh, evangelicals coming at issues of canon and text from historical vantage points, right? Beautiful. Yeah. So uh, uh, that's another way I kind of have an outlet. Um I think that's probably the best way to okay. access some of the things I'm working on these days. And, and that was through that, that blog site. Yes. Yeah, Evangelical Textual Criticism. Uh, we need to get a shorter URL, don't we? <laughs> <laughs> and, and
1: then um, are you on social media? You mentioned Twitter. Um, can yes, find I, you t- I am
2: on Twitter. My Twitter handle is at Dr. John Mead. Beautiful. So, yep, I'm on Twitter. Um, Facebook, sure. All right. Sounds good. Well,
1: Dr. John Mead, thank you so much for uh, sharing your expertise and your knowledge with us. Um, and I hope that this is an encouragement to all of our listeners out there that these issues of canon um, and what is scripture, um, we, we can't skirt them, even if they don't surface in our normal conversations. But, but these are things that we actually need to address with our young people um, if we want them to have a, a faith that is, that is well thought through um, and accepted as truth.
2: Amen. <laughs>
3: Brief time with Wayne.
0: Chrisil's, you are a uh, smart dude, uh, along with uh, Mister Don, Doctor John Mead. <laughs> I can't even say his name. Yeah, uh, Doctor Don. There, there's a reason I wasn't at the interview. So, um, just I guess my first question before we even get started, and I'm, I'm going to need some help um, unpacking some vocabulary. Okay. And um, but my first question for you is, um, what was what was I don't know. What was the interview like for you? Just, just asking. What was that process like?
1: It was fun. Um, there was a there was a part of me that like after reading a title like the New Testament canon list. There was a part of me that was like, ah, I feel like this might be dry. Um, I, I not, like might be difficult to make this fun a fun interview <laughs> experience. But I don't know how you, it sounded. But yeah. I had fun. I thought I, it was fun.
0: I could hear I could hear him smiling. Yeah. Um. You know what I mean? Yeah. I, I, and I was thinking too. Like we all. I mean, I guess this is an assumption, but we all like to talk about things that we're passionate about. Yeah. And I was just thinking, like, honestly, sincerely, what a gift that you gave him. Like, you gave him an opportunity to discuss these things with, with people. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, I just think that was really cool. Yeah, it was fun. Um, I think one of the things... It I... was good. It yeah. was fun, okay. for sure.
1: I, one of the things I really liked, I don't, I don't know if this is just me, um, there, maybe there's a part of me that, like, I, while I can't necessarily believe Most conspiracy theories that I hear uh-huh. Like there's something about the process of pulling back The curtain um, that is Attractive to me and yeah. so Like with the whole canonization process A lot of it just smacks of stuff hidden Behind a curtain because yeah. we don't talk about it And so right. whenever I get a chance to Peer into something that I feel like I'm looking at The ancient church's dirty secrets yeah. um, it It's enjoyable to me We should do one on your dirty secrets
0: Yeah Notice Notice the pause Yeah we're good <laughs> Um, that's cool. Chris, I appreciate your curiosity and I think that you are the perfect one to ask him the, the questions that you did. And, um, so I, I we're just going to start, um, I'm thinking about, um, people listening to our podcast who maybe have not had a church history class. Um, like I have confessed multiple times, my notes are probably so dusty. Uh, you know, I, I couldn't even get it off. So, um, definitely want to just unpack some, some terms. Sure. So can we just start with Canon. Um, and I know I know that you guys kind of you you, you you do talk about it and you 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 I don't say you dance around it, but right. um there is some assumption there. So for people that just need to hear outright, what is canon?
1: Um I think that the the street Christian <laughs> definition of canon is like the the authorized scriptures. The okay. things that we can say, these are the word of God. Um I he does a good job at one point of sort of parsing out the difference between the word of God and canon um, when he's talking about Karl Barth, the theologian, for a little bit, where he says that there, there can be something that's the word of God, but canon is also something to live by. Hmm. Um, so it's not just that God spoke this stuff or it's inspired by the Spirit, but it's something to
0: live by. So um, not not to be bratty, but are there things like potentially then that God says that we don't have to live by? Is that kind of like the what he's saying, or yeah, or yeah, potentially? Sure. That like
1: even today there might be your. <laughs> We've all probably had personal experiences where we've felt someone, like, God is speaking to us through someone, through a book or whatever, and we could say, yeah, God is speaking um, through those things. But then at the same time, we wouldn't hold it up to the same level as what we would call scripture or canon because it's not this, like, universal apparatus for followers of God to use as a way of um, figuring out how to live as people of God.
0: Okay, right on. So that that might, for any of our Bible... Students out there, or, or um, that might fi- fall more into like the Wesleyan quadrilateral. Yeah. Right? Where, where scripture is at this high authority, but there's also these other ways of experiencing God, but it mm-hmm. doesn't necessarily give it authority. Perhaps. It's not yeah. universal authority. Yeah. Cool. All right. Um, lists. Yeah. So we, so we have canon, and then we have canon lists. Yep. Uh, and that's his entire book. And right. Just, you, so you 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 read a substantial amount. It sounded like in in, in, in in what you were talking with him. What are what are canon lists? Well, um, they are lists that appear in ancient writings
1: where, when early church fathers and mothers are talking about the scriptures, are talking about the word of God. are there
0: are lists of books that they refer to. Um, Got it. So it's not like if I call my homeboy up in another country. And he's, he's at a church, I'm at a church, and we start talking about the Bible. We, we just know we're talking about these 66 agreed-upon books. right? But you're saying, like, so back in the day, mm-hmm. my geographic tribe or, or mm-hmm. group, when we talk, refer to, like, would we, would we actually refer to it as the lists? Or we, like you said, we just say the Scripture. Yeah. And then I might have, again, my homeboy in another country, mm-hmm. and his church might say Scripture, but there might be three, four, five books omitted, that we might have is that is that kind of yes and, okay. and I think cool. it's not even just that makes it a lot more tangible
1: right and it's not and it's not like all of the lists are necessarily like Irenaeus like made a bulleted list with right. numbers attached right. to it um, but rather um, I know that there are other cases within this process um, where reading through the documents of the early church fathers you can see which which books they quoted as scripture like what they had
0: access to mm-hmm. what, what was the the common. Right. Agreement. And so even, okay. even
1: in some of the documentation, if there isn't a list per se, um, in their writings, you can see them cite all four Gospels. You can see so them an cite implied, Paul. An implied list. Right. Okay. Yeah. And cool. so, so they mention them sort of, even if it's not in list format, um, you can build a list off of what they've referenced as scripture, which he said there's two ways of seeing. It. It's either um, it is written or like scripture.
0: Like, yeah. 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 I, liked, I liked that part. Cool. Okay. Um, council of Nicaea. Yeah. So that's something you go over, you touch on in uh, Jesus and the Gospels a little bit, or do you just the, the council or the synod? Do we know now? Yeah, of I
1: got corrected. Um, the synod of Laodicea. Okay, yeah, so um, so, so then let's
0: we'll t- we'll hit that one in a second. So Council of Nicaea. What's the That has come up in, in the podcast. Um, what's the significance of that uh, in a brief chunk in church history?
1: My, well, the significance of it, as far as I know, is I feel like people who don't really— um do a whole lot of church history, that's the one that everyone knows. Right. Um, yeah. That's the one that has...
0: Yeah, maybe maybe your church had a church history class mm-hmm. or you, got, you read some notes. And, and sometimes, this is
1: kind of one of the bigger ones. Right. And sometimes churches will even cite the Nicene Creed, right? Um, which comes from the Council of Nicaea. And so I think that is sort of... When people talk about ancient church, I almost feel like that's just the one that people will say because they're okay. like, that sounds old. Okay. And it was important. Um, they, they clarified some things about Trinity... In um, Christ and the Holy okay. Spirit and things like that, there.
0: Okay, um, but there's no. I mean, something I learned in this podcast that there was no canon list there. Right now, why is that? Um, pretend, I don't want to say shocking, but um, but that might be kind of a new revelation for some, like the the people who have dug in just a little bit, like you said. What's the assumption there about? the canon process.
1: Yeah, I think the way that I sort of previously understood the the canon process before this interview and reading Hmm. a little bit more is that it seemed to me that there were clearly set criteria. Early church fathers all sat down together and said, these are the five criteria that we're going to follow, and we're going to say that these things are Scripture if they meet the criteria. And then they all got in a room, had a conversation, and then came out... And something cool happens. Right, right? with, with the canon list. But, I mean, the process seems... Kind of the exact opposite,
0: that it's this messy— It's a little more, a little more messy, a little more human. Yeah, a messy, maybe?
1: messy process that's totally decentralized. Um, I mean, it's centralized in the 15th century, but that's pretty late for a lot of us.
0: It's really late. Yeah,
1: yeah. yeah. <laughs> like especially if we we assume that the thing that we call the Bible is, is this central part of what it means to practice Christianity and— we weren't "quote unquote" agreed upon what the Bible was until the fifteenth century. Um, that it's just shocking to think that, right? Um, now but he he does a good job of like saying that why that even if it's shocking, it shouldn't frighten us. Yeah, but kind
0: of. Temp- temp- temper right like 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 temper your your but nevertheless (laughs) i
1: think that some of the assumptions probably wrongly handed down assumptions that a lot of us have is that there was some like a crazy miraculous process that happened really close to the time of the events that said here's the bible and we started binding them in letter in leather and um painting gold on the edges since then but we haven't been doing that
0: yeah okay cool Mm -hmm. Uh, do you feel like it like kind of demystified it for you a little bit yeah
1: i feel like um if we're going to talk about like big takeaways from the the whole conversation with him. I I feel like that was one of the main things is that it demystified in the sense that like the elements of it that just seem like magic um, were taken away. And, And I think that the, the longer I follow Jesus, the more a lot of things get demystified. Yeah. Even, like, hearing the voice of God and prayer. Like, a lot of the things we've talked about, yeah. um, there's been a demystification process. Now, cool. when I say demystification, I don't mean, like, naturalism um, and there's no supernatural. Oh, come on, Chris. Yeah, I know. But I, I do think that— You're not going to read the Jeffersonian Bible? No, I'm not. <laughs> but when I say demystified, I mean— um, I think sometimes a lot of these spiritual things, we assume that there's going to be like magic dust. Boogly boogly. Yeah, yeah.
0: And I, I think you kind of even somewhat alluded to to it with like the nail. Yeah, uh, the scholars being able to like it's almost like they have this like there's a mythos to yeah, it. Yeah, then they have this this uh, this ability that that only could come from them from the unknown and right. um, yeah, okay.
1: But rather, it's just. Since the time of the events, the community of faith had said, hey, these documents are really important. We should read them regularly. Um, And then they realized that they were useful for instruction and edification and... First yeah. Timothy, et cetera, et cetera.
0: Yeah, and what I like there too is I think that it 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 does fit in with this other narrative that we see a lot throughout the text, which is this idea of wrestling. Hmm. Um, and so this kind of shows me it's a little bit it's a little bit messier. Um, there probably were some wrestling matches over mm-hmm. this, right? And there's some some good tension talk. And, yeah, as late as Martin Luther, there's yeah. still wrestling matches. Yeah. over Yeah, and so I, I I think I think that's one of my takeaways from it is just is that um, this helps me because I, I don't I don't necessarily. Experience the oogly boogly on a daily basis right. with the text, and so um, yeah, this, this this made it like, oh yeah, our brothers and sisters really they dug into this thing, yeah, just like we're trying to do today. So right. that was that was cool. And, well, and I think
1: with the wrestling stuff, I yeah. think
0: that one another
1: big takeaway for me with the demystification is. Um, that the wrestling is not an indication of uh, the fact that we shouldn't trust the text, but the wrestling should increase our trust in the text yeah. because otherwise we could point to, I mean, even thinking about the idea like now in retrospect of a bunch of privileged empowered people in the post-Constantine church getting together and making a, mm. a broad decision about what is sacred. Um, there's part of me that's like, Oh, that, that. That smacks of conspiracy. Yeah, there, and there, is scary. there is
0: room for some jacked up stuff. And I, right. that's actually some of the critiques we do get from yeah. people outside of
1: Orthodox Christianity. And, and what's great is that that's not the case. The opposite is the case, that yeah. since forever, we've been fighting about it, um, yeah. and the fight has been open. It hasn't been a, you can't fight or we'll kill you, but um, mm. the the churches across uh, across the world have been wrestling with this issue, and yeah. somehow these 27 New Testament Books continue to rise to the top.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's a good wrestling partner. Yeah, I like awesome. it. Cool. Okay. Um, uh, Council of Laodicea, uh, and then Synod of Laodicea. Yeah. So, um, yeah, that was a cool little a little opportunity for for us to continue learning. Right, right. lifelong learners. There. What what um, what can you tell us? The significance of church history with the Council of of well, so th- and th- we, now the synod.
1: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> with the um, with my tenth graders, um, we talk about the chain of custody, which is a term borrowed from J. Warner Wallace. Um, but it's the idea that how do we know that the text was passed on accurately mm. from the time of Jesus or from the time of the early authors all the way until our earliest knowings of the text and the council? Because th- one,
0: because one of those arguments, like you say, like chain, like one of the arguments is like. You'll get someone like okay let's play the let's play the uh, telephone. the telephone game really yeah. quick and look how much we suck and we can't even just get this one sentence and right. so how are they how, how get... can we dare trust this oral tradition yeah, right? so, absolutely okay. and, and so those dates um
1: the the synod of Laodicea is significant because it does have all twenty seven books stated um that that those are held as scripture so However, he also pointed out that this is not a universal church thing. It was a, a regional gathering of leaders, yeah. right? So, at, But we still have this regional gathering of leaders affirming um, the books that we now call the New Testament. And that's also paired with that other strange word, Codex. I've always been saying Sinaiticus, but he probably knows better than me because he has his studied. PhD in this. <laughs> um, so Sinaiticus um, ha- cool. yeah, has the 27 books of the New Testament and we actually have that codex, like we mm. so. And this dates back to three around 350 AD. So That's huge. we have a we have an entire copy of the New Testament manuscripts from 350 AD. And there's fragments that are much older than that.
0: Is that the oldest of of an entire? Codex? I think so. Yeah.
1: Um, if I'm not That's mistaken, crazy. because there's codex Vaticanus and Washingtonianus and all these other ones, but I think um, Sinaiticus is the oldest entire copy, and it has those there's other so two many
0: jokes. I want to say about those
1: words. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I want to s- discover one and call yeah, it. Yeah, Chris, that's what I Christopher just Christopher Cilialianicus. Cilialianicus. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah. So those are um, those two things are significant because we don't have to trace the chain of custody from the events to 2018. Yeah. we just got to make sure it was held intact between the events and those dates. And if we
0: look, that's a short.
1: Yeah, and if we look, we can look in the writings of Irenaeus, Irenaeus, Ignatius. Um, Polycarp, yeah, Eusebius—all yeah. of these people were mentioned, and and we get consistent features of that's the gospel so all yeah, the way so it's through. It's reliable, yeah. yeah so that's reliable. That's the takeaway.
0: Yeah, yeah, <laughs> awesome. Uh, and then, just really quick, the, what, what what's up with council and synod? Um, I'm, not, yeah. I'm not the kind of guy that says synod a lot, yeah. Chris. <laughs> <laughs> what's well, funny? So well, you grew up Presbyterian, though, right? Yeah. Did like, you do you remember I synods? Dude, I grew up. Like, like, those, okay. those are the key words. So I wasn't listening. <laughs> I rolled my eyes a lot, and I, you know, did the Westminster Confession of Faith. So, uh, so, uh, yeah, our our church um, is part
1: of a synod, and the synod is the local ruling um, affiliation or group of churches. Um, and so
0: why is that significant though, to call it a synod and not a
1: council? uh, Because the council is the, is more like a universal meeting of the church. So you'll have, you'll have people from the Western coast of Europe all the way down through North Africa. Um, and the, the Asian church gathering together to make decisions and talk about important matters. Whereas the synod is like,
0: Hey, let's get Southern California together. It's like a city council as opposed to like the Senate. Right. Okay. Exactly. All right. Okay, cool. Thanks. Um, Okay, what's up with this um, this concept, this term, Catholic epistles? Mm. Um, I know that we have—I well, guess that's a big assumption. I would assume that we have some listeners that have not heard that term before. Mm. Um, and then even maybe just we might have to unpack what Catholic means here. Yeah, so— that, that might, Yeah, so, yeah, what do you got? How did the
1: Catholic Church get its name?
0: Go. So, you. I don't know. No? Yeah.
1: Oh. It's it's just a fancy way of saying universal.
0: Universal. That's the small. That's the small c.
1: Small c. That's yep. the small c. And so you yeah, put, like, put okay. a big c on it. Okay. Cool. Cool. Um, when there, it gets institutionalized, then it becomes an institution. Right. Okay. Like small c communism versus big c communism.
0: I love small I commun- I don't know what that means.
1: <laughs> well, no, like I'm just a- no, no, I'm joking. Okay. Actually, okay. chapter two, small <laughs> so, c <laughs> communism. So
0: okay, so so universal. <laughs> so when we say and, th- mm-hmm. and this is this is something I actually do like to point out um, that like in the Apostles' Creed with with my students that it talks about like. The The universal Catholic Church, mm. right? Um, does it actually say universal Catholic Church or just Catholic Church? Catholic Church. Because that would be redundant. Holy Catholic Church, yeah, yeah. Got it. So, and then like I like to tease them and say that we're all Catholic, and then I have people looking at me like, no, we're not. No, we're not. But, yeah. So,
1: but Catholic epistles. Catholic epistles. So, if you've read enough of the Bible, you'll see the word Paul a lot. Right. Um, and so the Catholic epistles are the ones that are not Paul. Oh. Basically. Okay. Um, it's that simple. It, yeah. Um, But the reason they're called that is in general, there's like, there are some (laughs) like slight, maybe slight potential um, exceptions, but in, in general, they are generally speaking to believers. Okay. Um, Not necessarily, because you'll notice in Paul, he's like talking to a dude or a specific community saying, hey, tell so-and-so to do this. Say, what's up to this guy? Yeah. um, Are these girls still fighting? Right. (laughs) Right? Bring my cloak to Troas. Like there's very specific stuff. Whereas if you read the letter to the Hebrews... It's much more, hey, let me explain you the truth of the gospel. Mm-hmm. Um, whoever is reading this, you can take this and understand it. Yeah. Even Peter, his his has a personal feel to it, and he does address churches in Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia Minor, all of the, the places. Um, but the feel of the entire letter is general, Got it. right? Not Got necessarily it. specific. And so they're general or universal epistles because, cool. um, because they're not Paul and because they're a bit broader.
0: Got it. Okay. Awesome. Um, what else did I have up here? You know, you I when I was, as I was listening, I was I wrote down some notes about like disputed text, but mm. I, I feel like you guys yep kind of kind of touched on that. But I
1: think bit. that that bears repeating that
0: because that comes into the binary and trinary. That's right. kind of got into, You want to maybe yeah unpack that for me because so, it wasn't there.
1: So even if some texts seem like they they wear, bear this title disputed. Um, that did make it into what we now hold is New Testament canon. Um, I think that having that that trinary view shows us that it's not that it's the Bible or it's not the Bible. Um, Which is the binary. Right. But rather it's, there were ones that were clearly Scripture, like the four Gospels um, and Acts and most of Paul's epistles. Um, And then there's a few that were disputed. And disputed doesn't mean, oh, it's definitely out, but Most of us think they're in, um, but there are some questions about them. Okay. Right. Like,
0: so there was consensus, like not even just consensus. It was like everybody. Right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, It wasn't just like percentage. Right. Exactly. Whereas disputed is like, no, like one or two dudes, maybe three or four, maybe one community is like, I don't know about this.
1: And it's because there's like a question up in the air. Hebrews, we're not sure who wrote it. Um, the, the apocalypse of John or the, the book of revelation that we have, um, The reason that it was disputed for a while is because one person, he mentioned this, one person wrote and said, maybe it's not John the disciple, but John, yeah, maybe it's a different John because it's a common name. And so
0: a question is raised and... and, So that, and that, so hence the title disputed. Yeah. And Because we hear disputed today and it's like, oh, well, well, yeah, that's a slippery slope. Yep. Right. Exactly.
1: (laughs) And, And I think that that's probably more indicative of our current like political religious climate than indicative of what actually happened in scripture.
0: Are we going to talk about that soon I don't know the hijacking of, a, of the kingdom
1: in a future Whoa, episode that was
0: that's a really ominous title the hijacking um, okay so um, explain to me the, the trinary then
2: you, so, you, you, you
0: kind of yeah. did there but 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 there's one other kind of the, just... Oh, yeah, and
1: the last one would be uh, apocryphal or the ones who didn't make the cut and um, potentially we... dangerous.
0: Okay, and so just just for like a minute or two there. and So you mentioned them on the podcast or on the, in the interview. So we've got some fun names in mm-hmm. some of these. And Bell and the Dragon. Yeah, Bell and the Dragon, the Book of Enoch, the Book of Wisdom. Azariah uh, and the Three Jews. Oh, I don't know if I've read that one. Susanna, Baruch. I've read Baruch. So How, How's, the, how's the, the
1: Three Jews? Azariah and the Three Jews. How's that? Azariah is, um, you probably know him as Abednego, and the Three Jews
0: would be... Daniel, Meshach, that's, his, and that's his Babylon name. We don't we don't want to use his Babylon name. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, oh, okay. So it's just yeah. another. Okay, so yeah. so, so w- where do we find when we find those texts? Because mm-hmm. there they actually are. Um, maybe even some of our listeners have a Bible with an mm-hmm. Apocrypha in it. Where, where where do you more often see that?
1: Yeah, you'll see them in scholarly Bibles right. and in um, in Catholic Bibles. B- big C, Big yeah. C, Catholic, Big C, and C Roman. Why Catholic.
0: are they still included? And what is the? I guess what's the cautionary.
1: Mm-hmm. advice
0: prior to reading.
1: They're still included because I mean the reason when the holy spirit shows up at the baptism of Jesus it's a big deal because people believe that the holy spirit had been silenced mm-hmm. since Ma- silenced since Malachi.
0: Yeah, the 400 500 silent years? Yeah, 400, I 400 years. Ago. But
1: but with that we have um, this assumption that Okay, well, God's not speaking. And with that, we don't know what happens in that period or mm-hmm. what the people of God are doing other than from third party sources who may not really care about the people of God. Um, and so, what those apocryphal books are is those are books from, oftentimes from that period or referring to that period. Like 1st and 2nd and 3rd Maccabees, right. which is the period
0: of the Maccabean War, happens right. during that time. Yep.
1: Okay. Um, and so, you have uh, this, this intertestamental literature. Um, that you're able to look at and see, which is a lot of the our understanding of why Jesus is so revolutionary. A lot of the things we've referenced in this podcast, we only know it because of the Maccabean Revolt yeah, and the history yeah. that surrounds Judas that. And, Maccabeus. right? Yeah. All
0: of that stuff. Cool. Yeah. Awesome. Okay. So, so it helps. With, is it safe to say this is what I tell my students? Um, you don't go. You don't necessarily. Uh, the church does not believe that that's where you go to. Um, you know, find salvation issues. This is not, you know, right. We don't believe this to be inspired by God. Is, is some of some of the terms that we might use. Yep. Um, but that it is offering insight and maybe even commentary on right. some stuff, and can
1: be useful for understanding the rest of Scripture.
0: Cool. Right on. Okay. Um, do I have anything else on my? Who's this Athanasius guy? Did I say his name right? Yeah. Yeah. Who's who's this guy? Three sixty-seven. He said Athanasius in three yeah. well, sixty-seven. Dude, I, I got like student flashbacks and got all scared about being a, a kid again, having <laughs> to remember all these dates and yeah, which is horrible if I'm a teacher. Well, but uh,
1: Athanasius um, is significant in that he consistently stood up for Christian orthodoxy. Um, I believe I. Honestly, the main thing that um, I know about Athanasius um, is the Athanasian Creed, okay. um, which is probably one of the one of the clearest statements of the Trinity, cool. um, and it's um, ascribed to him that okay. we worship one God in Trinity, and the Trinity in Unity, neither blending their persons nor dividing their essence. Mm-hmm. Um, and Athanasius, and I guess the writings surrounding him, have been credited yeah. with that early understanding and solidifying of the Trinity it for. For future generations.
0: Yep. Yeah, awesome.
1: Even my Bible ten class.
0: Yeah, I think that's so cool that you guys yeah. do that too. Um, Chris, what are, um, as high school Bible teachers, what's what's a nugget, a, a thing that we can. I don't know. We can use in our class, or that will help us in answering questions when kids ask us questions. What's what's just a, an easy takeaway that you you grabbed as well? You um, mentioned a couple. Oh uh,
1: yeah, I think other than the ones I've mentioned, the big one for me is don't hide anything. Cool. Um, if we, I
0: love that you said that at yeah, the end. With
1: if, him. if we hide, if we hide this um, this stuff from the students, um, then it's just going to be another excuse for kids to say that um, religion lied to them. Yeah,
0: what else did you lie to me about? And then they call everything into account. Yeah. Cool. And then how about, well, I guess, no, I guess that fits for anybody. Yeah. Just be honest about the process. Yep. Um, feel fine. You guys, I, I have no problem saying I don't know with this stuff. I, it's been so long since I've touched this, and because I'm not currently teaching it, it's not something that I have to stay brushed up on. So this has been really refreshing to me, and it, mm-hmm. it does. It reinforces because there's so much info there. Mm-hmm. It reinforces to me that I really do need to say I don't know. Yeah. And let's go find. Let's go find Chris. Yeah. Or let's go. Let's go. Let's go look in, 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 into our other notes. And yeah. So that's that's a that's and, a healthy one.
1: And I think it's also important to note that the information is there, right? That there's not right. like a black box that's sealed that hides this from us yeah. but there's because of the disputing we actually get a, a window into that process yeah
0: um, i guess last question for you chris if you don't mind a little bit more per- personal what does it do for your um understanding and interaction with with the word um, more on a personal level not not just teacher chris
1: um, i think it a recent insight that um i got from uh, listening to a, a podcast where Pete Enns was um, interviewed. He, he specifically talks about um, how the Jewish people view Scripture as a problem, not as a proclamation. Hmm. Um, oh. and, and what he means there right. uh, is not necessarily that... There's something wrong with Scripture, but the way that we approach Scripture is meant to be chewed on, wrestled with, and to provoke conversation and discussion. And constantly,
0: right? Like right. Like, over and over yeah, and Yeah, even,
1: even looking at the Talmud, which is one of the most sacred texts of the Jewish people, it's just a list of arguments yeah. with people about Scripture. Um, and I think that within Christianity, because we want to proclaim the gospel, um, we've, we've lost some of that, and we want to tidy everything up. Um, and we want to have say things like, "Well, there was five criteria for canon, and this mm. is how it was chosen, and these things clearly don 't have any tension between them but but I think that this just further do. yeah further <laughs> illustrates this point that mm. no that that the wrestling match that started with Israel um, mm. probably should continue with the people of God yeah. um, as we as we wrestle with truth, as we wrestle with history, as we wrestle with what is scripture and what is canon." That all of this stuff um, is meant to be wrestled with. If if we keep our hands clean from the process of wrestling, then we're probably not growing.
0: Yeah, dude. Mic drop. Let's end it there. All right. No one says mic drop anymore, by the way, except for like old dudes who are teaching Bible. Go team, go.